If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22 through chapter 12, verse 4. Uh, a text that I've called the proof of an apostle. I would actually call it the proof uh, of a true servant of God. 11.23-12.4 You're going to need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need a piece of paper and a pencil or pen or something because I might be a tad bit controversial today. Just an idea. Alright, let's read the Word of the Lord beginning in verse 22, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without numbers, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast on what pertains to my weakness. God, Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the Ethriarch, under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, so escaped his hands. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up in the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body, apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Father, help us to hear today and help us to be honest with your scriptures. And Father, help us to be overwhelmed by your scriptures and the privilege that each and every one of us in this room right now has to have your scriptures. Help us, Lord, to hear your word, to look at our brother Paul and say, Amen and Amen. And Father, help us to bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords in an amazement that we have been called as part of your gospel. To you, my King, my Lord, my Savior. Amen. We've been looking at this and the Apostle Paul has been put into a place that the Apostle Paul does not like to be in. Okay, to speak of himself. But what had happened in the Corinthian church was false teachers had come in behind him 
And we're basically attacking the character of the Apostle Paul so as to discredit him. If I can discredit the teacher, then I can discredit his teaching. And I can lay a foundation of error. And that is what our adversary does. It goes back a few years ago when our adversary started this thing with, Has God said? And that is it. Spiritual warfare has nothing to do with weird-shaped creatures with horns and fangs and glowing eyes or anything like that. Spiritual warfare are for the minds of men. Your thinking processes. He comes at us with speculations and lofty things raised up against the true knowledge of God. So when you have a person who is speaking truth, then you will have people who will come in either behind them, alongside them, or whatever, and will antagonize them. Does anybody know what book it was written where Paul says, a messenger from Satan was given to me as a thorn in my flesh? Anybody know what book it was in? Second Corinthians. Why? That's what spiritual warfare is. Okay, so what we've been looking at, the Apostle Paul now has to, because of what the Corinthians have done, he's got to speak of himself, and he detests that. All right, if you ask anybody who knows me very, uh, very well at all, or even cursory, you will know, you will know, and they will tell you that there's one thing and one thing only. That is the biggest burr in my saddle. I only have one. Okay, I tolerate a lot. I am patient with a lot. There is one thing that just is, it, it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard on steroids for me. You know what it is? Pride. Because it's everywhere. And it drives me nuts. Okay? It drives me nuts. And when I hear it, if I know you, I will tell you that that's pride. Okay? And from that point on, I want to tell you something. You have nothing else to say. You have to deal with that. Okay? Because everything else will be tinted and by pride. So I, I don't care what you're saying. It could be the most profound thing on the planet. But if it's motivated by pride, it's only being pushed by Satan. And it is absolutely useless. Okay? We all got that squared? All right, all right. Just, I just want you to know that, because that one drives me nuts. Okay? Uh, the Apostle Paul... I spent too much time with him, I think, is my problem. Because he, that he detests this. If I am going to boast, I will boast in Christ. And that's what he's doing right now and what we're looking at. 23 through 27 in our verses, he shows that the proof of the apostle because of his experience of suffering. Okay, a false teacher does not suffer. They're not in it for the suffering. If something comes against them, then they must have done something wrong. Let me compromise to make it right. All right? It's that simple. 
But he also has the experience of sympathy, 28 and 29. His concern for the church, and then he makes the statement, who is weak without mind being weak? One of the things that I have watched happen in, in my years as a pastor and in my years here in Castle Rock is, is that the love of the church is gone. We don't have it. I mean, we got like 54 evangelical churches in Castle Rock. I can go to a different church every Sunday and still have an extra one in case I need a spare. All right? And, and there isn't the passion for the body of Christ. All right? Because, you know, the church made me mad. I'm not, you know, he didn't. I've had people leave the church because I was driving downtown and, and I didn't see him on the sidewalk and wave at him. Okay? Well, you know, he's just, he's just not friendly. Well, next time I'll run over you. Beep, beep. Okay? I mean, do you see what I'm trying to get at? You're like, really? That's the issue in our life today. Gosh, I miss that. All right? But he says, when I look at the body of Christ, I, there are those who in the body of Christ who are weaker, and it says it's our responsibility as Christians to strengthen them. All right. But see, we don't like to hang out with weak people. Why? They take time. And I'm busy. Okay. But it says strengthen them. And then he makes this statement. Who has led it to sin that I am not within tense concern? Okay. Who in sin does not literally inflame him? Now you think about it for a second. I go back to my one thing that bothers me. Pride. All right? When I see pride in a believer, lost people, I expect it. When I see it in a believer, it inflames me. Okay? The, the proverbial hot under the collar. And, and that's what he's saying. But his passion was for the people to present everyone complete in Christ, he told the Colossians. All right. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that should be your passion, whether it's your children that you're dealing with, whether it's your spouse you're dealing with, whether it is a co-worker you're dealing with, whether it is a co-believer that you're dealing with, whoever it is, it should be to present them complete in Christ. But we moved into this next one in 30 and 33. His experience of submission. And I find this fascinating. If I have to boast, I will boast to what pertains of my weakness. Let me tell you how weak I am. See, see how easy pride is to spot? Most people want to tell you Look at what I've accomplished. Think about it. You think about a person right now who is looking for a position or a job. Do they go in and say, you know, I'm an idiot at this. I'm an idiot at that. I couldn't do this if you give me a map. I couldn't accomplish this. And would you hire me? Is that what they say? No. And if and you can go on websites right now and see churches that are looking for pastors and pastors that are looking for churches and go read it. Tell us what your education is. Tell us what you've accomplished. Tell us how many people you've led to Christ. Tell, da, 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 da. tell us all the bangs and whistles that you've accomplished. 
I remember a guy left the church one time years ago, and he said, I just can't stand to listen to you. And I said, why is that? He said, you never finish a sentence. He says, everything you've got is a dangling participle. And I just looked at him, and he says, what's wrong? I said, I don't even know what a dangling participle is. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? I mean, that's truly an issue? That's the problem? No. I'd give anything anymore to find a pastor. Have you ever read your Bible? Just a curious thought. I know you've read a bunch of books about the Bible, but have you ever read the Bible? It's, it's, yeah, you never mind. There's another burr in my saddle. All right. So he starts with this experience of submission. And 30, if I have to boast, let me tell you about how weak I am. But then he goes into this. This is an amazing statement that he lays out here next. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, see, that's a good statement right there. That's the difference between Allah and Jehovah and Jesus Christ. Okay? Ours is the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now, you say that in the wrong crowd, say that in a Jewish community and duck. All right? Say that in a Muslim community and duck. Okay? And then he says, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. Now, you would think that he's going to start talking about going to the third heaven. But that ain't what he says. He says, I am calling on God the Father of my Lord Jesus Christ that I'm not lying about what I'm about to say. What is it that he's about to say? He gives a fascinating account. God as my witness. About an adventure in Damascus. Okay. He ran into a Christian in Damascus. In Acts 9. And we're going to go over there in a minute. In Acts 9. Who the Lord told Ananias that Paul would suffer greatly. So I want to go over to Acts 9. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, then repent. But um, I, I have some issues with this text. And I will give you my argument. And if you don't like my argument, then you can read it the way you want to read it. Now Saul, still breathing threats, verse 1, chapter 9 of Acts, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was the a.k.a. pre-Christians, right, was the way, all right, both men and women, and he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that as he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, I bet. 
It doesn't say that in your Bible. I was just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing voices and I'm out in the middle of nowhere. But anyway, hearing the voice but seeing no one, Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. He was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus, Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up. And go to the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who are called by your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and after laying hands on him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Stop right there. Okay? I'm going to ask you some questions. All right? Simple questions. This is going to be like that uh, CIS. Is that it? What is that? Forensic show? Ah, uh, whatever. What? CSI. There you go. I, I'm always good at these things. A forensic show. Let me ask you some questions. Who wrote the book of Acts? The good doctor. Luke, right? Let me ask you a question. Was Luke with him throughout the writing of the book of Acts? Careful how you answer. A lot of what Luke wrote was given to him by who? Paul. And he wrote it down, right? Now, you got to understand, other than Paul, Luke wrote most of the New Testament. Between his gospel and the book of Acts, when it comes to number of chapters, Luke is in there. So who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, right? So there's big chunks of Acts where Luke wasn't with him, Right? Okay, I have some questions. All right, here's a question that I have. And, and I'm not going to go to all of this. So you can uh, check it out yourself. Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Paul tells the Galatians that he was sent to Arabia to study under who? Jesus. He also told the Galatians a fascinating phrase. I do not have a message that was given by man. Right? It was given to him personally by the Lord. Correct? We all agree. All right. When you think of Arabia, some of your maps will call it Naptia. Okay? When I think about it, it is Damascus. To the Red Sea, over to the Euphrates. 
Right? So it's a, it is the eastern edge. Damascus was the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. The rest of it was what you call Arabia. Right? He studied in Arabia for how long? Three years. Three years. Right? Now that's serious training. And he's getting a message that's not coming from men. Because if you're honest with the context, it was after he came out of Arabia, he went to Jerusalem to meet with Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, right? And yet it says that he preached in Arabia. Now, if I go to Acts chapter 9... It almost seems like that he took food and strengthened. And now for several days, he's with the disciples who were at Damascus. And he he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Wait a minute. Where did he get the training? Where did he get the training? He knew the Old Testament. But where would he be preaching Jesus Christ and the message of Christ and him crucified? Because he got the message from who? From Jesus. Where? In Arabia. How do I know that between verse 19 and the second half of 19, he didn't go out of Damascus and go to Arabia for three years and then return to Damascus? Because there's some fascinating things about this guy, Eretus. All right, let me tell you some things about Eretus. Now, you've got to understand something about Arabs, okay, and the Arab culture at the writing of this letter. One thing, there is no such thing as Islam. They were pagans. All right, Eretus, the word means king. All right, it's similar to the phrase Pharaoh or Caesar. So, Eretus was the fourth, would have been around the time of the Apostle Paul. He puts in place an ethriarch, okay? That is a governor to have oversight over the Arab people in the city of Damascus. But the throne of Arabia was a place that many of you know. Petra. That is actually a tomb for Eretus. The king's tombs. Alright? Eretus had a daughter. Okay? To bring unity together, guess who she married? Herod Antipas. Okay, anybody know who Herod Antipas is? Well, I can tell you this much about Herod Antipas. He divorced Eretus's daughter... So he could marry Philip, his half-brother's wife. And that is the one who wanted John the Baptist's head cut off. Okay? Now it's starting to sound like Peyton Place, doesn't it? (laughs) Does does anybody here remember Peyton Place? Anyway. (laughs) Okay. What I'm trying to get at is, I'm trying to figure out, and I struggled with this because Paul told everybody, where did his message come from? 
from the Lord. He wasn't taught by Peter. He wasn't taught by any of the disciples. He was taught by the Lord. So how does he walk around in Damascus and begin preaching Christ? Unless, is there a possibility that after he was strengthened at his conversion, he was led to Arabian desert? Because that's a big area. Was taught by Christ for three years, went down to Jerusalem to see Cephas, went back up to Antioch, Syria, and was sent out with him and Barnabas. All right? And all of a sudden, he shows back up where? In Damascus, an Eretus whose daughter had been jilted by Herod Antipas, who had had John the Baptist, the precursor of Christianity, beheaded. And he begins preaching in the synagogues, Paul does. Why? He has the attire of a Pharisee. Okay, he, and a Pharisee, if you came into town and there was a synagogue, you immediately got the pulpit. He would begin teaching in there and he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest. Paul kept increasing in strength and confronting the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Why? Eretus has already got a mark on Paul. Why? Look at what... He's changed from Judaism, who he allowed his daughter to marry into. Herod Antipas. Okay, she was divorced so that he could marry his half-brother's wife. She had John the Baptist murdered. Now you got one who is of that. Here he is in my city. But if you look at it, he has the attire of a Pharisee. He has the credentials of a Pharisee. The Jews were Furious that he was pre- preaching Messiah, Savior, King of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a, a large group of Arabs in the main city. And Eretus is in control of the governor, the Ithriarch, who is there. And he leads oversights over the Arab colony in Damascus. And this king and his governor are those who are in charge of the Arab population. Now, I, I say that because you, you've got to take the Arabs who were pagans. There is no Islam. Islam didn't show up until 600. All right? And he gets the Jews mad, which was his spiritual gift. He'd go into the synagogues and beat them with their own book. But now he's got the Arabs mad at him. But remember what he told Ananias? He will suffer greatly. And he began suffering at the beginning of his ministry. He had irritated the Arabs and they had joined with the Jews in Acts 9. And the Jews were plotting with the Arabs, with the Arabs involved. So 
they could seize Paul. They literally had the Jews in the city of Damascus looking for the Apostle Paul. They had the Arabs at the gates of the city of Damascus waiting for him to come out. They knew that he was in town and they wanted to get him. And the Jews were wanting him dead. And the Arabs were guarding the gates. And this is the beginning of the great suffering that Ananias was told by the Lord and that the Lord had told Paul that he would suffer. Just getting started into his ministry. Just getting started. He has the Jews and the Gentile world after him. You know what? This was just the beginning of what Paul's life was like from the beginning of his ministry until he laid his head on a block of wood in Rome and an executioner cut his head off. Now today, you have a preacher like this. You're taking alongside. You put your arm around his shoulder says, we need to talk. You would counsel him that he needs to change his method. All you're doing is making the world mad. You need to try in the gospel presentation to be subtle. You don't want to hurt people's feelings. And the reason is, if I can get people to like me, then they will like my Jesus. And they, then they give me the proverbial statement that has heard around the world. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? Every time I hear that, I put my arm around their shoulder and look at them right in the eye, smile as big as I can and say, the baby's drowning. can't go around making people mad, Paul. You have the Arabs guarding the city. Paul has made them mad. If my conclusions are correct that he went to Arabia for three years, there's no doubt in my mind that as he runned around Arabia being taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, they could not keep his mouth shut and he made all of them mad. So by the time he showed back up in Damascus, guess what? I've got the Arabs mad at me. I've got the Jews mad at me. In Damascus, the Ephriarch under Eretus the king was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize him. Verse 33, And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. You know what's amazing about that verse right there to me? Here's the Apostle Paul, called of God, spirit-filled. None has ever walked as Paul walked. And yet he was no match for this conspiracy. The wall of Damascus was wide enough to drive a chariot around it, on the top of it. 
there would have been some homes on the top of the, the wall of Damascus. And some of the homes would have cantilevers that would hang over the side. They'd have windows on the outside and all the rest. And they would hang over a little bit. This basket thing that you hear, see here, the original Greek term literally means a rope basket. It, it, it would be more like a, a net, a little more tightly, like a cargo net, but it'd be tightly woven. And he was lowered down in this net. And here is this great apostle of Christ. The great apostle Paul. The apostle to the Gentile. The noblest of Christians. A worker of miracles. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. Had mighty deeds. He had a viper. A poisonous snake. Latch onto his hand. And he shook it off. And nothing happened. An angel visited him. In the ship before it sank. That Paul is no match for the Arabs and the Jews in Damascus and is lowered in a net out a window. It almost has a little embarrassment to it. I'm let down in a cargo net to escape these people wanting to kill the Apostle Paul. He had to get out of town. See, that's his submission. His submission. It would be like trying to hide somebody in a trash can and roll them out the back door so nobody would know that he's in it. Paul was unable to match the earthly power of his enemies. That's pretty impressive if you think about it. When you think about the experience of his suffering, when you think about the experience of his sympathy, when you think about the experience of his submission, really shouldn't be surprising. Why? He was, let's be truthful, a mere mortal. I mean, if it had been me lowered down in a basket, the rope would have broke. <laughs> and I'd hit like a sack of potatoes in the dirt. I'd probably survived, but I'd been about that tall. Because remember, this is the same one that says, a messenger from Satan has been given to afflict me. A thorn in my flesh and you know why? To keep him humble. Now, I don't know anything more humbling than to be lowered out of a window in the middle of the night so as not to be arrested and murdered. I guess that's better than the alternatives. But when I think about it, when Moses went up to Pharaoh's magicians, it was like, come on, make my day. Not the Apostle Paul. He also was so humble. Okay? So the proof of an Apostle, the experience of suffering, the experience of sympathy, and the experience of submission. True man of God, you will always know because it will be seen as humility. 
Always be seen in His humility. Next week we'll look at the experience of the supernatural. It's an interesting text, the first four verses of chapter 12, because there's not really anything you can add to it. You just kind of read it. So it'd be a quick message, right? Sure it will. <laughs> anyway, I have not been to heaven. All right? Haven't seen no bright light. Well, I did see a bright light one time, but there was a train. So, and I got off the tracks and the bright light went out. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. And uh, thank you for your precious church. Father, I pray that as, as the Apostle Paul had it, his daily concern for the church, that that would be the passion of your people today. You know, I look around and it doesn't seem that that passion is there. And yet, Father, she is still your bride. And even those of us who love your church cannot love her as much as you do because you gave your son for her. Uh, Lord, what you did to this man and his love for you, I still stand in awe of. And Father, I, I thank you for the years that you've allowed me to spend with this man. And Father, I hope and I pray that each of us will be overwhelmed by his faithfulness and by His faithfulness, we would strive to be faithful. Father, may we be found standing in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, overwhelmed with Your presence, overwhelmed with Your love. And thank You, Lord, for what You do. In Christ's name, Amen.